Good morning, everyone. So it's hard to follow up, but we're going to try. Um, this week, we're actually going to be um, wrapping up our last Sunday of Advent. Uh, as we've been sharing, uh, for those of us who grew up in the church and didn't grow up in the church, Advent is the four Sundays before Christmas. And one of the reasons I love Advent is it reminds us that, first of all, we're a billion strong. There's billions of uh, Christians in the world right now. And this is a chance to join with them together to look at the coming of Jesus into our world. Advent is not just the billion Christians now. It's every Christian who's ever lived who has celebrated Jesus' birth. It's a season of waiting, expectation, and celebrating, as we've sung this morning, Emmanuel, God with us, that the king of all kings became a baby, that the God of radiance took on skin, that the God who created all things became a creature, flesh and blood, and moved into our neighborhood. Um, the original, uh, original, the first Christians um, from their Greco-Roman background, they also saw Advent, though, as Perusia or Adventus, and that also pointed to the coming again of Jesus Christ. So it wasn't just, oh, he came as a baby, but it's that that Jesus will come again. So if we want a full rendering of this whole season, it's a reminder that Christ has come. It's a reminder that Christ will come again, but it's also a reminder that Christ comes today. And that's why we celebrate the season of our God-fulfilling promises. Here at HBIC, we have four themes of Advent. And this year, we said when we look at Advent, we want to think about it as Christ coming to create God's kingdom into our world. Our four themes are hope, peace, joy, and love. We started off with Joseph, and we looked at his story in the Advent. Last year, we did the women of Advent. This year, we did the men. Um, when we said with Joseph, what we're reminded there is that hope that brings God's kingdom into the world is simply this trusting what God has done and trusting what God will do. If you're worried about how to make it through the day, trust what God has done and trust what God will do, and he'll get you through the day. Amen? And then we looked at Simeon, and Simeon and, and his counterpart was Anna. And what I love about their story is this is for Christians who have followed God for decades, for the Christians that we don't see up front, for the people who are just quietly following and serving God. And it's a reminder to them that peace with God comes. But what is this peace with God? It's shalom. It's the idea that Jesus comes so that you can have peace with God, so that you can have peace with your sister, so that you can have peace with your brother, so that you can have peace peace with creation. That's what the shalom is. And what does that look like? It looks like the Holy Spirit being on you, the Holy Spirit speaking to you, and then the Holy Spirit pushing you out into the world. That's what shalom is. That's how we bring God's kingdom, by being people of shalom. And then last week, we visited Zechariah and his wife Elizabeth. And we said that, you know, for a lot of us, we can follow Jesus, and it can become like a, a rote memory or just something that we do. And we said that the onus is on us to never lose our joy. And what joy is, is not just a feeling or an emotion, but it's celebrating God's blessings. In a world that needs joy, God sends you. In a world that needs light, God sends you. In a world that feels broken all the time, God sends you to bring the healing. By celebrating joy, you're pledging to say, I will tell of my God's goodness. I will tell of my God's blessings. And a reminder with Zechariah is that we can follow God for a long time, but we take our eyes off Jesus just one time. We might take a step to our own destruction. But praise God from whom all blessings flow, because when we put our eyes back on him, we can celebrate joy. And this morning, we're going to look at love. There's a lot of different ways we could define love. But this morning, we're simply going to say love is Christ in us, Christ for us, and Christ with us. 
I want to begin with an Advent prayer. This is from a, a, a saint who lived a long time ago, a lady by the name of Angela Foligno. And, you know, they say nothing good can come from social media, but this came from social media. One of my friends is Dave Perry, who's the worship pastor at Grantham. And, you know, kids these days, he only posted half of the poem, right? And I read the whole thing. I was like, no, we're going to do the whole thing because we're not kids these days, you know? But it's a beautiful poem. And I read a little bit about Angela this week. And what I love about her story was that she was so moved to live for God. Back in her culture, you know, if you were moved to live for God, you became a priest or you became a nun. She was married. So what she helped, what she joined was a, a creative third order. They were called Franciscan tertiaries. And these were married people who says, yes, I'm married and I'll never be a nun or I'll never be a priest. But every single day I want to live for God. And they committed to following God. And now we're singing or saying her prayers hundreds of years later. And she became one of the greatest writers probably in Christian history. So you should check out her stuff. Or not, just listen to this poem and it's beautiful. But this is going to be our Advent prayer this morning. Please pray with me. The words of Angela Foligno. O Lord Jesus Christ, make me worthy to understand the profound mystery of your holy incarnation, which you have worked for our sake and for our salvation. Truly there is nothing so great and wonderful as this, that you, my God, who are the creator of all things, should become a creature so that we should become like God. You have humbled yourself and made yourself small so that we might be made mighty. You have taken the form of a servant so that you might confer upon us a royal and divine beauty. You who are beyond our understanding have made yourself understandable to us in Jesus Christ. You who are the uncreated God have made yourself a creature for us. You who are untouchable one have made yourself touchable to us. You who are most high make us capable of understanding your amazing love and the wonderful things you have done for us. Make us able to understand the mystery of your incarnation, the mystery of your life, example, and doctrine, the mystery of your cross and passion, the mystery of your resurrection and ascension. Blessed are you, O Lord, for coming to earth as a man. You were born that you might die, and in dying you might procure our salvation. O marvelous and indescribable love, in you is all sweetness and joy. To contemplate your love is to exalt the soul above the world and to enable it to abide in loan and joy and rest and tranquility. Lord, give us the grace to understand your supreme love in creating and redeeming us, in choosing the human race from all eternity to attain a vision of yourself. Give us grace to understand your goodness in creating us with the gift of reason by which we may perceive your glory and our own sin and wretchedness, by which we are able to resist our sensual nature, which inclines us to sin. You have created us, O Lord, in your own likeness. You have clothed us, O Lord, with the light of your reason. O Supreme Being, help us to understand your love, for you yourself are love. All the angels, the saints, and people love you and contemplate you and gaze upon you and worship you forever and ever. Amen? Amen. If you have your Bibles, please turn with me to Luke chapter 2. If you've been following us or maybe listening online or here every four weeks, uh, every the last four weeks, you've been knowing that when I'm talking about hope, peace, joy, and love, what I've tried to do is at least get us to start with our common understanding of the theme, you know? Because you can't just say this is what the Bible says without at least beginning with what we understand, right? So for two years now, I've been trying to answer this song, What is Love, right? And like every good millennial, that song pops in my head, baby, don't hurt me. So for those of you who know that song, you're welcome. And for those of you who don't know that song, you're fine, right? But every time I said, what is love, that song's been playing in my head. 
But either way, we're going to try to answer that question this morning, right? And I'm not trying to hurt you, but as you read or listen as I read through Luke chapter 2, I want you to answer that question, what is love? How does love live here? How do I see love in this passage? What is love? Luke chapter 2, starting at verse 1, we'll have it up for you on the screen as well. In those days, Caesar Augustus issued a decree that a census should be taken of the entire Roman world. This was the first census that took place while Quirinius was governor of Syria, and everyone went to their own town to register. So Joseph went up from the town of Nazareth in Galilee to Judea to Bethlehem, the town of David, because he, longed to, he belonged to the house of line of David. He went there to register with Mary, who was pledged to be married to him and was expecting a child. While they were there, the time came for the baby to be born, and she gave birth to her firstborn, a son. She wrapped them in cloths and placed them in a manger because there was no guest room available for them. And there were shepherds living out in the fields nearby, keeping watch over their flocks at night. An angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were terrified. But the angel said to them, Do not be afraid. I bring you good news that will cause great joy for all the people. Today in the town of David, a Savior has been born. He is the Messiah, the Lord. This will be a sign to you. You will find a baby wrapped in cloths and lying in a manger. Suddenly a great company of the heavenly hosts appeared, an angel praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and peace Glory to God in the highest heaven, and on earth, peace to those on whom his favor rests. When the angels had left them and gone into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, Come, let us go to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has told us about. So they hurried off and found Mary and Joseph and the baby who was lying in the manger. When they had seen him, they spread the word concerning what had been told them about this child, and all who heard it were amazed at what the shepherds said to them. But Mary treasured up all these things and pondered them in her heart. The shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all the things they had heard, which were just as they had been told. What is love? You either have that song in your head, or at least you're like the rest of us who know that love is complicated. Because even in our culture, we use it so much. What does it even really mean? For example, I'm going to tell you a few things I love. I love my wife. I love our children. I love our family. I love our God. I love steak. I love the New York Mets, even though they don't really love me back. I love HBIC. And I love the worldwide church. What is love? If we got someone from a completely different culture and I talked about those eight things and I asked them to define what love is, would they really know? Do we really know what love is? We define love today as, you know, an intense feeling, a deep affection, great interest, great feeling, great affection. But what is love? Now, the ancient Greeks understood love, and a lot of Western culture is actually based on what the ancient Greeks thought. Now, I personally think they stole a bunch of it from Africa, but that's a different sermon and conversation. You make mistake, and I'll tell you how we did that. <laughs> but the ancient Greeks, who we know, because they have the books and they killed everyone, but that's another story, too. They had love, and they explained it four different ways. They understood love, as complicated as it is, it falls into these four steps. The first was eros, storge, phileo, and agape. What's interesting about eros is that we like that in our culture. We understand eros, and we think uh, 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 romantic love. But what's interesting is that's a very late modern construct. The original meaning of eros was simply an intimate love and friendship. It had nothing to do with romance. 
It didn't have anything to do with Valentine's Day. Crazy, I know. But when they said eros in biblical times, they meant the type of love where you can be yourself and you can be vulnerable before someone and they loved you for you. That was eros to them. We've made it a little bit different. The second type of love is something they called phileo love. Or or actually, actually, I want to do this one first. They call it storge. And storge is interesting because storge is the love you feel for your family, the love you feel for someone who belongs to you. What's interesting is Paul, when he wrote his letter to the Romans, said this, be devoted to one another in love. Honor one another above yourselves. Now, what does that mean? What Paul's actually saying in the Greek is this, though. Be devoted in storge to one another. Honor one another above yourselves. Be devoted with deep friendship, with family kindly affection to everyone who calls the name of Christ. That is, when Paul says here, is that be devoted in storge, that means every single person who believes, your loyalty belongs to them. Every single person who chooses Jesus, that is now your family. The blood that flowed on Calvary matters more than the blood in your veins. Paul is not just saying, love each other and try your best. He's commanding us because when he looked at Jesus, he's saying, we are called to storge. We are the body of Christ. Your allegiance is not to your political party. Your allegiance is not even to your last name. Your allegiance is not even to yourself. Your allegiance is to Jesus Christ and his people. Be devoted to one another in storge. If they believe in Jesus, that's your sister. If they call God God, that's your brother. That's who your allegiance belong to. So while Paul is not just saying, try your best, Paul is saying, if you truly believe in Jesus Christ, His people are your people. And if his people aren't your people, you don't truly belong to Jesus Christ. Storge. Another one we understand from the Greeks is phileo. You know, you've heard of the city of Philadelphia, right? Every time you go there, you just feel that warmth of the brotherly love, right? I can't wait, can't wait till the Dallas Cowboys fans walk into the Eagles Stadium at the link and they just, they feel all of that brotherly love this afternoon, right? But the thing we miss about phileo is that it's not just about a brotherly love or a sisterly love. It's a devotion. And it's something I missed for years. If you want to think back to me, if you're familiar with the Bible, after, before Jesus died, Peter was one of his best friends, and Peter denied him three times. And Jesus, when he goes to restore Peter, he goes to him. And here's why love is complicated, because this is how we read it in the English. Here's another newsflash for some of us. The Bible wasn't written in English. You're welcome. But in the English, this is what we read. Peter... Do you love me? Yes, Lord, you know I love you. Peter, do you love me? Yes, Lord, you know I love you. Peter, do you love me? Yes, Lord, I love you. You might be able to get a feeling of the scene, but you miss what Jesus is really saying here. Because what Jesus is saying is this, Peter, do you agape me? Yes, Lord, I phileo you. Peter, do you love me the way God loves you? Jesus, I'm trying, but I'm just your brother. I'm just trying to love you like that. Okay, Peter, if right now you can't love me the way God loves you, I am still your brother. Okay, Lord, I love you as a brother. It's a little bit different than just reading love, 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 love in our English. Jesus is speaking of a higher love. 
Phileo is devotion to one another, but agape is what the ancients called hesed. Agape is this idea of God's love or loving the way God loved. It's God's love in action. It's God's love to his people. It's God's love for the underdog, the disadvantaged, the weak, the ostracized, the marginalized. It's God's love and unmerited favor. It's God's love that's not out of obligation. It's God's favor and grace that rests on his people, his faithfulness, his lasting loyalty, his kindness. Jesus says to Peter, I know you've denied me, but do you love me the way I love you? And Peter can't answer yes. He says, Lord, I'm trying and I fell short. But Peter, do you love me the way I love you? And Peter is honest and we beat him up for this passage. But I think it's beautiful that he looks God in the face and he tells him the truth. And he says, God, I can't love you the way you love me, but I'm trying. But praise God from whom all blessings flow because Jesus says, okay, Peter, if you're willing to start there, I'm willing to meet you there. And we forget that about our God. We think that we have to be washed up and clean before we can come back. We think we have to be perfect before we can come back. And God will always ask, do you love me the way I love you? And if we're honest, we'll probably never be able to say yes. But praise God, he's able to say, what you love me with, I can work with that. Do you love me, Peter? No, Lord, but I'm trying. Okay, Peter, that's good enough for now. You know, I, I went to a Christian college, I went to Messiah College. And I think this past summer was the first time I didn't get invited to like 10 weddings, right? Um, this is a little bit of my soapbox for all the young people out there or you have friends who's getting married. I tell you, and I'm begging you, please don't rent tuxes. Don't even rent dresses. Buy them. You know, you get to at least keep them. You might never wear them, but you get to keep them. Um, for probably the 10 years to 15 years after I graduated, I was either in or invited to at least 10 weddings a summer. Kid you not, Christian school, you know, that's how we do. Um, but what's fascinating about this is you go to a lot of these weddings and we always, well, majority, like 75, maybe 90%. The reading is what? 1 Corinthians 13, the love chapter. And even as a kid, you know, I was cynical. So I'd be able to sit there and I'm just like, ooh, I really hope your marriage looks like this because this seems hard, you know? But you read that love chapter and you're like, love is patient, love is kind. And I'm like, do they realize what they're saying? Because the love they're saying here is agape. It is not just like this feeling you have for your romantic partner. It's not just this feeling of loyalty you have. It's, are you willing to love this person the way God loves you? So when you stand up and say, love is patient, love is kind, you're saying, God is patient, God is kind, I will try to do the same. And I think if most pastors knew this is what they were asking the couple to do, they might hesitate to choose that passage. But they should, because that's the kind of love that God wants from all of us. Agape is patient. Agape is kind. Agape does not envy. Agape does not boast. Agape is not proud. Agape does not dishonor others. Agape is not self-seeking. Agape is not easily angered. Agape keeps no record of wrongs. Agape does not delight in evil, but rejoices in truth. Agape always protects, always trusts, always hopes, always perseveres. Agape never fails. And the reason you have to understand this love that God gives us is because this is the love God expects you to give to the world. So now when we get back to Luke chapter 2, you have to ask yourself, what is love? 
Because here's the story. You have a census going on, and Joseph and Mary have to go back to Bethlehem. What's interesting about that culture is that Joseph, as the man of the house, could have gone by himself. But the first place you see agape was in this love of each other the way God loves them. Because Mary was about to have a child, and Joseph says, I know this trip from, from Oberlin to Philadelphia is going to be a little bit hard because we walk in it, right? I know this trip from Nazareth, this little town, to the big old city of Bethlehem is going to be hard but you, my wife, can't be alone right now. And Mary shows her allegiance to Joseph because she's pregnant. She could have been like, you know what? I'm good. You go handle the census. I'll figure this out by myself. But she shows love to him by saying, we're still the minority in this culture. We are still the oppressed people in this culture. We can't really trust Rome, but we will trust our God and we'll trust each other and we will go together. How much of our relationships look like that, right? We can't trust our, our, our country or we can't trust the words coming out of people's mouth, but we will trust our God and we will trust each other and we will do this hard thing together. That's the agape love they had for each other. Second one. It's what I missed for years, right? I'm a city kid. My grandfather was a farmer, but by the time I came along, he was like semi-retired. So we just had lots of fruit everywhere, and it was delicious, right? Well, my first real trip to the farm, I remember, was in middle school. I went to a camp outside of Chambersburg, and they said, let's go to a farm. And I was so excited until I got to the farm. Because farms tend to have a certain smell, right? And as a city kid, I just wasn't prepared for that certain smell, right? And I think this is important for us to understand that the God of this universe came and was born. Because we have crush, right? And they're beautiful. And we have nativity scenes that we hide around the house and they're artistic. But we need to be reminded that Jesus was born among the animals. If you've ever been to a farm and you've ever taken that smell in, that's what the Savior of God, the Savior of the world was born into, we love to have our nativity scenes and they're beautiful and they're perfect. But think about the farm and think about the fact that Bethlehem is crowded because all these people are coming back for the census. And I don't know if you've ever made a, 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 a reservation in a hotel and you get there and they say they can't take you in. That feeling you feel, now imagine birthing a child into that feeling. Joseph and Mary go to the inn and there's no room. So they're forced to go out to the stable and the Lord of heaven and earth is born among the animals. There's no room for him in the house, but he still comes into our world. Now, for those of you who are blessed with parents, maybe you remember your first child, right? You wanted everything to be perfect. You know, you wanted everything to be perfect. No one to touch you. Like and the doctors, you know, they got all these years of research and experience, but you still don't really trust them, but you're trying your best because you know you, you want everything to be perfect. And yet Mary births Jesus among the animals. And we have the manger, and we sing away in a manger, no crib for a bed, it seems so sweet, except when we remind that the manger was a feeding trough where the animals ate. For those of you who have children, remember when you had your first kid and your family member came in, they looked at the baby like, did you shower 17 times today? You know, because you're some hand sanitizer, you need to put it all over your body before you touch my child, you know? But yet and still, the Savior of the world was resting in a feeding trough. The God of this world was coming among the ugly, among the stinky, among the people who had no room for him, and that's what he's born into. But I also love that you see agape, and not just God humbling himself to come, but in the shepherds. This is another one that we're so removed from that we elevate. 
Shepherds were one of the most despised groups of people in Israel. And that's weird to us. We're like, well, David was a shepherd. Yeah, but he also happened to be one of the ones who became king. He doesn't really count, you know? Well, Jesus is a shepherd. Yeah, he's God, right? Like, everyone else that was a shepherd was despised. And the reason they were despised was because Israel was all about being right and righteous and holy before you entered into the temple. The shepherds never went to temple. Because here's the thing. You might take a week to get ready to go to temple, but then sheep are sheep. And every time you interacted with the sheep, you needed to start your week over. So the shepherds just never went to temple. So no one really liked shepherds, you know? And some commentators try to, like, uplift this group of shepherds and be like, well, if they're that close to Jerusalem, you know, maybe they're the ones who are, are getting the animals ready for the sacrifice of the temple. Yeah, but it's still the middle of the night. They still have to live out in the middle of the night, and they still have to follow sheep. Shepherds are not the people that everyone looks up to. But I love that about our God, because yes, Christ's story is about the magi and the wise men and the angels and everything that's pretty, but it's this reminder that God sees you, that you, oh, regular you, has something to do in the story of God, and this isn't the first time God does it. Before the Passover, it's women who were despised that God uses to get the world ready for Moses. More than that. After the resurrection, it was women who were despised that God gave the voice to voice out the resurrection. God never forgets you. God always sees you. And even the shepherds that are despised, they now get to be the ones to discover the Son of God. And they got to walk in and they got the markers. They're like, well, first of all, we got to find him among the animals. And for some reason, he's going to be in a feeding trough. But when we see that feeding trough, we will know this is the Son of God. And what I love about these shepherds is after they go, they see it, and they're so filled with good news, they go and tell everybody. There's a new um, Nike commercial with LeBron James. I don't know who the marketing person at Nike is, but they're brilliant, right? I'm fairly certain they have a Bible degree, but that's just me, right? Because Nike is really a Greek word. You think I'm kidding, but this is true. Like, Nike is a Greek word, and they take that ancient Greek understanding, and they use it. So, for example, in the LeBron commercial, they flash back, right, to this scene where LeBron used to have this giant billboard where he spread out his hand, right, because he's the Savior. That's what they teach, right? He's the Savior of basketball and all things good, right? And, and, and at the bottom of it, it said what? We are witnesses. That's biblical, that's biblical because you know what they're playing on was that same ancient idea that this is so good, this Savior is so amazing, your witnesses go and tell everybody about this Savior. That's Nike. That's biblical. That's the message of Jesus, right? It's not a coincidence that he's standing like this. It's not a coincidence they say we are witnesses. And here's the thing that bugs me the most about myself and about all of us. So join me in on this one. A lot of us are very easy to wax poetic about the goodness of LeBron James than we are about our Jesus Christ. And if it's not LeBron James, it's someone else to you. It might be your favorite politician. It might be your favorite teacher. It might be your favorite person. We all are more likely to wax poetic about all the things we say good, but then we keep our mouths shut when it comes to our Jesus Christ, when we're supposed to be what? His witnesses. But I love these shepherds. They were the least of these. They get the message of God, and they go and tell everybody about him. And what about the angels, the praise chorus that comes out of nowhere? I read this week that our faith is the only major faith that almost always requires singing. Imagine going to a church service where no one sung. What in other major religions, like 
that might be the case. They might not sing as much or at all. And what the author was saying is there's something about corporate worship. When we sing together these things we believe, when we join our voices together, what we believe not only comes and pours through our body, but we sing it with joy and singing takes our memories back and reminds us of the goodness of our God. And I love that even though these shepherds are in the middle of nowhere, God still sends them a praise chorus to let us know that it's not just earth that's rejoicing. All of heaven is rejoicing that Christ has come. So how do we see Jesus' or God's agape love? We see it in Joseph's faithfulness to God and to Mary. We see it in Christ, the King of Kings, being born among the animals and in the feeding trough. We see it that God didn't forget the lowly shepherds and he sent an angel to them. We see it in the angel praise chorus. We see it in the angel shepherds going out after they experienced God's faithfulness and sharing it with everybody, impelling us to do the same. But we also see it in Mary, who just observed it all and treasured them in her heart. God's love from this text tells us that his love, his agape love is faithful, it's humble, it's intentional, it's joyful, and it fulfills promises. From all of scripture, we see God's love as God gifting us his very best. Mary and Joseph weren't just randomly chosen. They were from the royal line of David, the priestly line of David. They lived in this town called Nazareth that happened to be at the crossroads of the world. They were born into this time that was perfectly ready for Jesus to be born, and they were chosen to bring God into the world. Simeon and Anna weren't just random. Yes, they followed God for decades upon decades upon decades, but they were so filled with the peace of God that God gave them holy appointments, and they both, before they left this earth, got to hold the Son of God. Zechariah and Elizabeth was this reminder to us that we can follow God for a long time. But if we take our eyes off of him just one time, we take that step closer to our own destruction. But praise God that he's always redeeming. And God teaches us through Zechariah's story that if we're willing to believe the promise that joy comes in the morning, there's nothing we can't get through. If we're willing to put Jesus first, live for others, and then worry about ourselves, there's nothing God can do through us. And in Christ the baby reminds us of Emmanuel, God with us. That's what Christmas is all about, that Christ has come to be with us. So you can have all the different ways to explain love, but this morning I want you to simply say, love is Christ in me. Love is Christ for me. Love is Christ with me. And because we're Christians, we're going to change it a little bit and forget, stop thinking about me and saying, what? Love is Christ in us, Christ for us, and Christ with us. Like Mary and Joseph, you have been chosen to bring Christ into the world. There's no other way to put it. God has chosen you. He's left his spirit and his church. You're the ones who are supposed to bring Christ into the world. Paul said, Christ in you, the hope of glory. God's love is in you. Your job now is to share God's love to your world. It's not a suggestion. It's a commandment. It's not just an expectation. It's what you better be doing. If you can assess, a lot of times we think about God's love for us. It's all something we receive, something we hold on to. But Christ in us should be shared with the world. And if you can honestly answer right now, how is Christ's love in me? How am I sharing God's love to the world? And if you can answer truthfully and know you're falling short, that's okay. Just get to work. It's not meant to beat yourself up because when you beat yourself up, you're paralyzed and Satan wins anyway, right? It's good to admit where you fall short 
but then get up and do something about it. Get up and actually walk in your faith. Get up and actually start living with Christ in you and sharing that with the world. Love is also Christ for us. God so agape us, he sent his son for us. But Jesus so agapes the world, he sends you. And I can't say this enough. In a world that's known for its darkness, Jesus says, you are my light. In a world that's known for its brokenness, Jesus says, in you I can heal. In a world that's known for being so far apart from God, Jesus says, abide in me and I in you, and we can change everything. Because here's the thing, as Christians, and I will always harp on this, we sacrifice the privilege of complaining. If you are really good at complaining about everything that's wrong with the world, I don't know if your eyes are truly on Jesus. If you are really good at, at focusing on everything that's wrong and your life is more about complaining than actually looking for solutions, if your life is more about telling how everything's broken instead of asking God, how can you use me to fix it? If that's what you're all about, I don't know if your eyes are on Jesus. And here's the other one. I don't know if you belong to Jesus because Jesus knows the world is dark. He just calls you his light. Jesus knows the world is broken. He just wants you to help him fix it. Jesus knows people are far away from him, but he says, I have a billion of you in the world. I have 400 of you who came this morning to Harrisburg Brethren in Christ. If your life is all about complaining about the brokenness of the world, I'd like to invite you this morning to put the book down of complaints and to keep your eyes fixed on Jesus and saying, God, I want to get to work. And here's the last one. Love of God is Christ with us. You know, it's something called the Great Commission where God and Jesus, before he goes up, says, you'll be my witnesses locally, globally, all over the world, right? You will be my witnesses. And he says it in Matthew. He even says a, a different one in Acts 1.8, right? And when he talks about this witnessing, what I love about Matthew's version is that we think, you know, telling people about Jesus, baptizing them, will go to all the world. We think that's the joy of that promise, right? That many people will believe but you know what the real joy of that promise is? Lo, I will be with you always. That's the joy of the promise, that no matter where we are, God is with us. That no matter what we do, God is with us. That no matter what we face, God is with us. No matter what the world throws at us, God is with us. Christ has come. Christ will come again. Christ comes today. Let the love of God, the agape love of God live in you. Because if you have that love in you, you will tell it to your world. If you have that love for you, what can be against you? And if you have that love with you, there's nothing God can't do that this world doesn't need. Whatever darkness, God wants you to be the light. Whatever brokenness, God wants you to be the healing. Everyone who's far apart from him, God wants them to feel his touch. This morning, we're going to end by um, doing communion. We'll have communion um, up front, and we'll do it through the circle communion. Uh, this is one of my favorite communions because it invites us to not just come up, but we stand around the sanctuary and we get to see each other as we partake. Um, in thinking about our oneness in Christ, our call to community, we'll be receiving the communion elements, holding them to partake together.